This is Hope Illuminated. I'm Sally Spencer Thomas. Decades ago, our state mental health hospitals began to close and many people experiencing chronic and severe mental health conditions found themselves homeless. Jails and prisons then became the new asylums. In this conversation, I speak with Judge Ginger Lerner Wren. She's created a mental health court that uses a diversionary strategy to help keep people experiencing mental health conditions out of jail by holding systems of care accountable. In this conversation, we look at these issues from a social justice lens. We talk about trauma-informed criminal justice, where at the center is dignity. Come, take a listen. to the 64th episode of the Hope Illuminated podcast, your source for the stories, science, and strategy of resilience, mental health promotion, and suicide prevention where we live, learn, and work. I'm your host, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, and I'm on a life mission to empower communities with solutions that help people overcome isolation and despair and rekindle a passion for living. Each episode, we're joined by international experts who inspire hope and offer real guidance. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we're having a very timely and important conversation about human rights and mental health promotion and suicide prevention. And this is an issue that's been near and dear to my heart for a very long period of time. I don't remember exactly what it dawned on me, but I do recall this aha moment about probably 15 years or so ago when I was thinking about the mental illness paradigm that we were really looking at suicide prevention from. And while it kind of made sense, certainly that issues like depression and anxiety and trauma and addiction were contributing to suicidal despair, the framework itself seemed insufficient because if it was only if we were only seeing this through a mental illness paradigm, then the only people who could create change were mental health service providers, professionals, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, et cetera. And while it's true, they do great work. If that's our only frame, we're never gonna get in front of this because those professionals are doing their work to support other people, one-on-one, -on -one, one family at a time, one small group at a time, and it's fairly downstream in this issue. So I was encouraged to see not much later that the public health sphere was starting to come into the conversation, looking at what could happen in our communities with our schools and our faith communities and our healthcare system and our workplaces, how those systems could make a difference. And I thought, well, that also makes a lot of sense because now we've broadened the scope of who can actually influence change here. But I don't really feel like this is satisfying either because when people hear public health, well, that's, that's somebody else's job. Somebody else is going to take care of that public health problem. It's probably going to be the government. You know, we'll see how they do that with that. You know, nobody really feels personally inspired to do this work. And the more I listen to the stories, especially with people with lived experience, people who had survived their own suicide attempts or lived through a suicide loss or were healing from addiction or trauma, the more I realize this is really a social justice conversation that at the root of so much of this despair and how people are treated 
are very, very core social justice issues. And I think when we frame this conversation in that way, now many, many more people can get fire in the belly to get involved. Because when it comes down to it, nobody's going to be standing idly by when a loved one of theirs is being treated with injustice. So therefore, it is absolutely my pleasure and honor to introduce our very special guest today, Judge Ginger Lerner-Wren. Judge Ginger Lerner-Wren was elected Broward County Court Judge in 1997. She pioneered the first problem-solving mental health court in the United States dedicated to the decriminalization and treatment of persons arrested with mental illness and co-occurring disorders. The court is a national and international model. She speaks often across the world and is an adjunct professor at Nova Southeastern University, College of Psychology and Neuroscience. She's also an author, A Court of Refuge, Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court. Judge Ginger, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sally. It is such a thrill to be here, and I can't think really of a more poignant time to be here. It's true. Talking about a subject matter that is just so so close to my heart. So thank you for having me. Yes, it's great to have you. And I know you're very busy. So I'm very grateful for the time you've made to have this conversation. Walk us back in time. How did you get to this point in time? And how did you get fire in the belly of really advocating for the human rights of people who had been living with mental health issues and had maybe been treated unfairly by the mental health system? Well, you know, I, I don't know if I was an unusual child. <laughs> uh, I hope not. But, you know, when I was, when I was just, at, you know, my first memories when I was a little girl is rather than, now I'm going to age myself here, Sally, um, rather than watch like Romper Room, right, on, on television or, or something like that, I was watching biography. The early, early, you know, when it first started in black and white and our little very poor picture television sets we had back in the in the 60s and you know I was really drawn to those stories involving civil rights leaders Mm -hmm. I mean mesmerized and you know that really I think was a more than a clue where my passion lied as a as a young as a young girl and I always wanted to run for office as I came into my teens and really interested in the women's movement back in the early 70s and so forth and so on. And ultimately, when I decided, well, if you're going to do this work, you really need to go to law school. That was the pathway back when I was younger. And so I did go to law school. And when I graduated, I, I just really was looking for that very special fit. Uh, It took me a while to find it. I was looking really to find conditions, not only where I could work uh, humanistically and also from a civil rights, human rights vantage point, but really I think I wanted to be multidimensional and it it took a while to get there, but I did. Mm, What do you mean by working humanistically? What does that mean to you? Just simply that I, I guess what it means to me is, is to be with people that really put people first. They put, they, they put humanism ahead of profit. They put humanism at the center of their, of their conscious, of their, of their value systems. And, 
you know, that's really something that I was looking for. And it really, as I said, not that easy to find in our culture and our workspace, but I did. Mm-hmm. And was there a moment in time where you kind of had an aha moment where you're like, I feel like this is my, my place. This is my calling to drive you towards the mental health thing. At the time it wasn't the mental health thing, mm. but at the time I had actually thought about retiring from law when I was in my, in my mid twenties, my late twenties rather because I couldn't find the fit. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should go back to college. Maybe I should get my doctorate in psychology. Maybe I just picked the wrong discipline. And I went over to Nova Southeastern University, true story. And I met with the deans at the college of where I teach at the time. And they looked at me and they said, you know, Ginger, you have a young, at that point, I had a a baby girl, little girl. And he said, they said it was two deans. And they said, you know, I really don't think getting your doctorate now is a good idea. If you want to do mental health work, get a mental health counseling license or something like that, but something quick, speedy. And I left and I thought to myself, no, 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 that's not really what I want. And I just really took some time. And I think the aha moment was really one of despair. It was one of being lost. And I don't know if we call that an aha moment, but looking back, I think it was my greatest gift to have the intention to allow myself to be uncertain Mm -hmm. and to take the time I needed to start over intellectually and, and, and spiritually to reevaluate what it is I really wanted to do. And I, and I really did a lot of inner work while I wasn't working. I stopped working. I had saved, thank goodness, I had saved some money. I could, for the first time, take care of my daughter as a full-time home mom. And as I was, as I was really reflecting, I guess in some sense, I was also manifesting because I got a call from a friend of mine, a a fellow, a a judge who said, you know, Ginger, there is going to be an opening at a program that I think you might be interested in. And it was called the, I love it. I mean, the name is fabulous. It's fabulous. It's called the Office of Public Guardian. And you would be the public guardian for Broward County, which was a probate program for adults who were deemed incapacitated by our circuit probate court, did not have any family members, were indigent and alone. And you would be their attorney. You would also direct the office. We had three incredible social workers in that office, along with some support staff, I ended up taking my own group of people to serve just so I could enhance my service model through that program. But the Office of Public Guardian, where I was responsible for the health, the safety, the welfare, the advocacy, I had to know everything. I had to know abuse, neglect. I had to become expert in disability rights law. I had to become expert in elder law. And there was also a segment of our program that were individuals that at the time were seriously mentally ill. They were actually living 
in our state hospital in Broward County that was actually a regional, a very large state hospital with over, with I guess an, an estimated 1,500 beds that literally served the bottom half of the state. And it was through that work that I gave a speech one day to a legislative forum where the state of Florida was threatening to close our state hospital. And although the conditions at the state hospital were under a federal lawsuit and they were trying to improve them and a lot of things were happening, this threat of closure, I think, was part of a somewhat of a a political uh, tactic, if you will, but yet I did appear and I spoke in favor of keeping the hospital open. It was the only real resource we had at the time. It was 1993, I believe, in Broward County. And uh, sure enough, one of the advocates that was there called me a little bit down the road about a month or so later to ask if I was willing to assume a rather controversial, very unique role in that federal class action overseeing the implementation of a consent decree at South Florida State Hospital. And I really understood the pain, the absolute desperation and the fatigue of the family members in my community. And I decided, you know, I really needed to go. Wow. That's really incredible. So I don't know that many, many in the general community really are aware of the of how we used to treat very severe and chronic mental illness before with kind of putting people in hospitals for long periods of time and the impact that, you know, the intention of closing those hospitals and the, and the impact that that's had for people like the, the folks you were trying to support who had no family, who had no money, who had no resources often ended up being people experiencing homelessness. And, exactly. and, and at the same time, for those who did have those kinds of supports, it was very liberating that they could get recovery, they could get accommodations and Well, there wasn't work a whole lot of recovery support. going on and there wasn't not a then, whole right, lot that, of accommodation not, going on right. there. It would, the, the conditions there, I think, were extremely inadequate. It wasn't a good plan. To the point, well, that's why there was a federal class action that had been filed. Conditions were really inhumane. There was no treatment. There was no therapy. And I can go on and on. But I think your listeners understand enough culturally about in terms of seeing films like The Snake Pit or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and all of these films and that had portrayed and continue to portray as is appropriate where our nation has failed our mental health system and all of our citizens that need mental health care in this country, which is why we've really gone from institutionalization, if you will, into these institutions, these hospitals, and then trans institutionalized into U.S. jails and prisons. I mean, jails and prisons are the largest de facto psychiatric institutions in our nation. And it really was the work of going into that, leaping into that, that role, that position that I think was just really a synchronistic thing to happen because all of my training now, I was, you don't get this kind of training in law school, but I was trained by an expert plaintiff's team from what is now Disability Rights Florida and 
I became expert on every facet, if you will, of, of mental health, systems of care, psychiatric rehabilitation and disability rights that one could hope for. And uh, I think people know that, your audience might know, but certainly uh, we do in the field, that when you are a monitor in federal litigation or in any kind of, of litigation, there's a shelf life. When my shelf life came to an end in 1995, 96, I decided it was time to run for office. And I decided almost by just kind of looking over the landscape of what would be the best fit for me, obviously I felt the judiciary would be. And I was elected without opposition. I ran for office with delectable iced spice, little Debbie gingerbread cookies. I think they were my <laughs> winning ticket. And 30 days before qualifying for a new judicial seat on the county court in Broward County, Florida, which is where Fort Lauderdale is, about 30 minutes north of so of Miami for your, for your viewers. A new seat opened up. It was late, very at the end of the campaign. And I had already been campaigning for a year and a half. And I got in without opposition. And I really, it was my, my, my hope against hope that all of the skill sets that I brought with me through the public guardian's office and through my work with, in mental health that I'd have an opportunity to apply that in my new job, in my new role as a judge. Fantastic. Just all aligned, you know, when you created that space in your life to kind of discern and figure out what the calling was, then the doors started opening. They did. Yeah. So you're best known for your mental health court. And for most, most people, this is a new concept. Can you explain the foundations of that and maybe highlight a couple of cases that have really inspired you in, in running this mental health court? Thank you. When I, when I came to the court in 1990, technically 96, but I didn't get sworn in until 97, there, the trend that was happening, and you, you alluded just a second ago to it, Sally, when you talked about the deinstitutionalization policy of the 60s, where community mental health was supposed to be the goal, and under President John F. Kennedy, and everyone was, you know, I think mental health advocates were so optimistic that finally we were going to have an answer to our mental health problems, our systems, and that never came to pass. So as old, archaic state hospitals that were actually very dangerous, overcrowded, lack staff, fire hazards, as they closed and downsized, you had patients then really coming out without discharge plans. There was nowhere to go. Just as you said, they became homeless. And uh, jails and prisons then became the new asylum. As a matter of fact, it was 1998, actually eight months after Broward County uh, established its mental health court that there was a special report in the New York Times that really sent shockwaves through the nation, written by Fox Butterfield, that U.S. jails and prisons are now the new asylums. And... So in Broward, I just think you talk about communities and how 
communities have the capacity. You don't need a whole lot of people to lead change. But I think that uh, that communities have an infinite capacity to lead change. And in Broward County, there was an awakening that we really needed to do something, that our jail, our local jail was overcrowded, that there was an overrepresentation of people being arrested with serious mental illnesses, other cognitive disorders, intellectual disabilities, traumatic brain injury. And then there was the high profile case of Aaron Wynn. And actually my book, and if I, I'll just hold it up for just a moment so you have it on screen, if I can do that. Thank you. A Court of Refuge. Stories from the Bench of America's First Mental Health Court is actually dedicated to Aaron Wynn and his family. I never met him, but he was a young, very quickly, you know, he was a young man getting ready to leave for college. He was involved in a very serious motorcycle accident and suffered a traumatic brain injury. His family that lived in Broward County, a upper middle class family, could not get any help, could not get any services. His condition worsened. He ended up being arrested based on a negative encounter with a police officer where a judge found him incompetent to proceed to trial. And he was committed to a forensic state hospital, much like the state hospital where I was working as a young lawyer, where for two years he was confined in isolation in four and five point restraints. When he was released without notification to his family in 1991, without any discharge planning, of course, now he was at this time now significantly worse in terms of his health. He was now being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, in addition to other diagnoses, plus the originating brain injury. And so the family was thrust back into, really into a nightmare. They really couldn't manage their son at home. There was no programs. The hospital where I was working had downsized to the point where there was a three-year wait list. And eventually what happened was another crisis. We talk about crises and how to prevent crises and why that's so important, whether we're talking about suicide prevention or mental health and other in criminalization. But he was in a grocery store, had a negative uh, episode at the cashier, darted out of the store, collided with an 85-year-old woman who herself fell to the pavement and sustained head injuries that she ultimately died from. And he, Aaron Wynn, was now charged with murder. The mental health court to just, and and you could read about uh, the story in my book, you could read about it on PBS Frontline, it was showcased. But essentially, the mental health court is an outgrowth of a grand jury investigation that was ignited from the Aaron Wynn case that found Broward County's mental health system to be deplorable, 
that there was nobody accountable in our system to anyone for anything. A task force ultimately was created that for the first time, talk about community, brought together two systems that never even spoke to each other, brought together the mental health system, the substance use system, and other parts of our human service system. And for years, they met in terms of how can we respond to the criminalization of people getting arrested in our local jail, people that would either revolve in and out endlessly, become homeless, go into emergency rooms, get arrested again upon discharge, or end up getting trapped because judges didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to respond to the, to the complexities of people with serious uh, mental illnesses and other cognitive disorders. And so the idea got floated, long way to get to the, to the mental health court, but that's the story that in really a, a leap of faith, we had no grants, no money, we don't get any grants, we've never got any funding. But the leap of faith was that we were gonna start a specialized court and the people on the task force, all of these judges, lawyers, stakeholders knew that there was a judge coming that had some specialized skills and that maybe together we could lead change. Maybe together we could launch a court that its focus really would be to prevent incarceration. And to use the court as a diversionary strategy to take people out of an inappropriate system of care, that being the jail system, and move them into more humane community-based, whether it be hospitals or programs or outpatient centers, just whatever anybody needed. But the court would actually act, if you will, as a funnel. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then using the authority of the court to hold systems of care mm-hmm. accountable. Yep. There's so much- I just want to pause technology. right there because mm-hmm. that, that I just want to acknowledge the power of that story that you just shared. And you know, I think every, every parent can see their risk-taking teenage child ending up in a situation like that. And then it's a series of decisions, a domino effect that ends up happening. That if we had just changed something right at the beginning, none of that suffering would have happened. And, and so it's a brilliant move on your part to say, wait, that we have other options here. We have other options because I, the healthiest person under four point restraints in isolation for that long of time is going to have a very, very, very decompensated mental health space when they get out. And yet he was going in already significantly compromised where he needed treatment and, and, Oh, I'm just very overwhelmed by the story. I'm just sitting here thinking about it. And well, it wasn't my idea, but but I certainly was more than thrilled to have an opportunity to apply the skill sets I learned. And I think also, and I think you could relate to this, you know, talk about moral injury for a Mm -hmm. moment. Yes. That my work, I spent a year and a half working every day at a psychiatric institution. That was my, that's, I'm probably the only judge that spent a year and a half at a psychiatric hospital. Tell me what you mean by moral injury and how it's related to this conversation. To see your clients Mm -hmm. not getting the care that they need and suffering. There was immense suffering. 
And the conditions, as I said, were very depressing. And here you are, and you really don't have the tools to really help anybody directly. We're operating through a lawsuit, a deinstitutionalization lawsuit that, again, was, was pretty controversial. But I think the silver lining was now I'm coming to the bench with all of these technologies that lawyers and judges just would never have. Mm -hmm. And so I, we were, it was a pretty heavy lift for our community because one thing that we didn't talk about, but we will, I'm sure in more detail, is the fact that there were no resources. Mm -hmm. That Broward, the state of Florida is one of 13 or 14 states that has no Medicaid expansion to this day. We so if you're going to do diversion, third, where, where are the options? We are the third largest state of the United States. We have large pockets of poverty. We're a melting pot. The barriers to care are immense. So the, the question that you asked is the question that a lot of naysayers were, well, Ginger, what is it you're going to do? You don't have anywhere to divert people to, but the naysayers didn't really understand the absolute impact of shared vision of a small group of people and communities. To, to the credit of a courageous community, I take no credit, we were asking every single service provider to break down and realign their service models with no additional funding in order to empower a court, to empower a judge, to get these diversions done, to, to help people leave the jail system and link them with the treatment and services that they needed. And it was really, again, it was a collective empowered community that said, we just have to take a stand against this injustice. That's right. We have to do something. Our family members and our community need to know, was it going to work? We weren't, I wasn't really 100% sure it was going to work. But if I came from, and this gets right to the heart, I think, of why we're here today, Sally. If my view is, if I, if I created a problem-solving court from a human rights vantage point, using a human using the court as a human rights strategy taking dignity and making it the centerpiece of every single facet of this court's process from how i welcome people to court during the day how you take a court and you literally turn it inside out to let the people that you are serving so marginalized so dehumanized, so traumatized, right. that we can take a court, make it trauma-informed, using a therapeutic jurisprudence model, and have a judge literally tell these people that have been so maltreated that this court is here for you. How can I help you? We are here for you and it's a voluntary court, but still, if you have a judge 
that people have their, their view, obviously, of how judges are supposed to act, how they're supposed to sound, that typically people in court come in, defendants come into a criminal court and they let their lawyers do all the talking. In mental health court, we went our court participants to story tell. That's right. We want to hear from their voice. We want to validate their experiences. We want to braid in the evidence-based research about adverse childhood experiences and trauma and that treatment works. And so it really, I am, we embedded a clinician at the heart of the court process and uh, right in open court, we do assessing and screening to find the sickest of those that are sick so I can get them to acute care hospitals. And uh, it really has been in its own way, living art, living theater of the pain, the immense suffering, the anguish, and also the joy of, of, of when there is recovery, engagement, and people go, oh my gosh, I, I am, I'm feeling better, Judge, thank you. Yes, that's beautiful. And I just love how you describe that with every decision with dignity at the center. That's the difference. That's the difference versus the assumptions that we make of the othering and all of that. This is a different frame. Do you have another story, a story that worked out well that you can share? There's so many stories that yeah. work out I just, well. Yes. Um, Anyone you know, rise to the top that really moved you or that you were really inspired we've, by? We've diverted over 23,000 people out of this court, which is a part-time court. Uh, I have a regular criminal division as well. People think it's my full-time court. It's not. But I think that if I had to go back to one story, but it's hard, it's very hard to do that. But I, I really do uh, think about Catherine Steves because Catherine is the only mental health consumer that actually I had a live interview for the book. The other chapters and stories in the book are really composites of many different people because there is privacy, et cetera. But for Catherine, Catherine's story is really, uh, I think, so fascinating in the sense that I even thought Sally, with all my experience, that I knew the face of mental illness when I came to that job and I could not be any further wrong. From professors to nurses, to accountants, to artists, to professional athletes, you name it. Catherine actually managed a large restaurant for 15 years, she was the mother of three children. And um, she, on her own salary, purchased a beautiful five-bedroom home in the western part of Broward County, not far from actually where Nova Southeastern University is, its main campus. And they started having problems in the marriage and one thing led to another and the distress and the high level of stress became very toxic for her. They were having money problems and all of that. And as her health began to deteriorate from a mental health 
vantage point, she really began to break down. And she never knew, for example, that she may have been suffering from depression or manic depression. It just never even crossed her mind. She was just functioning her whole life pretty well, she says, but with the divorce came a crisis. Mm -hmm. And one night there was a crisis. And while she was having a fight over the phone at the time with her ex-spouse, the police came and ultimately took the children out of the house, purportedly, you know, for their safety. And Catherine had decided when that happened that she just not being of sound mind, walked out of her house, locked the door and became homeless for the next two and a half years. Mm. And she said she never thought about going back to her house. If her children weren't with her, she didn't want to go back. She lived on the streets. She learned to adapt until one day, some unknown reason, she walked into a South Florida mall, a novelty shop. And as the story goes, she stuffed five harmonicas into her purse Hmm. and she got arrested. And it was a petty theft, but she ended up getting arrested. She didn't have any money to make bail. And it was a pretrial release officer, somebody in the system who said, you know, we need to get you to mental health court. And it was during that interview for the book, Catherine basically says, you know, judge, being in mental health court, she said it was the first time she says that I even realized I had lost everything. And through the court, Catherine was homeless and we had a beautiful 24 bed uh, transitional homeless shelter at the time called the Cottages in the Pines. It was award winning. We we tragically lost it in 2013. Mm -hmm. We had it for over a decade, but she lived there for a year and no rush. People were able to stay there really for as long as they really needed to make a really good transition. She decided she wanted to go back to college and she did. She got her degree in mental health counseling and she's been an intensive mental health case manager for one of our largest mental health centers in Broward County, Henderson Behavioral Health for the last, uh, I think over at least 15 years. What a great story. Yeah. What a great story. And it also really speaks to the, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs she needed some safe shelter so that she could focus on her own self-development. And so another social justice issue that's playing a role in this is the housing inequities. There's so many layers of social justice issues that bring people to your court. I'm also thinking of all the the racial inequities, inequities in access to care, inequities in education, the the police brutality, all of these are also contributing to communities well-being and to how people find themselves criminalized for things that if they had the right resources would not that those things would have not occurred. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the, those intersecting um, injustices. It is, you know, I also, you mentioned earlier to your viewers that I am, a, I am an adjunct professor and I do teach two doctoral courses, one in forensic psychology, one in criminal justice. So they're essentially the same course, 
And it really talks about, the course is really dedicated to therapeutic jurisprudence and to all of these new problem-solving strategies through a behavioral health lens that we could innovate justice. How do we innovate and reform the criminal justice system through all these wonderful strategies that we do have and that do work? And how can we prevent incarceration? And how can we across, if you will, the entire sequence uh, from community to reentry really work on meeting the needs of individuals, whether it's housing, education, employment, public health, behavioral health, mental health, substance use, and everything. So I think that one of the things that I really wanted to add that has evolved through the, through the court is not only do these practices that I use in mental health court remain in mental health court, but they get applied in my regular criminal division as well. And so all of the lessons that we've learned through how can you create a therapeutic arc if a culture in a courtroom, in a criminal justice courtroom? And if we have judges and lawyers that are willing to expand their knowledge base and really understand the impact of poverty, really understand what is the influence of social determinants of health and that zip codes matter. And that we really, I believe, all of us have an obligation to understand that there is implicit bias in our criminal justice system. I mean, that's not in doubt. As we film this podcast, the funeral for George Floyd is going on today. And that all of these issues that have driven, if you will, mass incarceration in our country are really coming to a head. And so the idea of the intersection of having safe housing, having safe communities, having quality education, getting access to quality health care, being able to create opportunity through pathways that will lead to living with purpose and that we don't have a, a, an America where for the first time our mortality rates have declined, our life expectancy rates have declined rather. And we are, as our friends and a foundation that I love so much, Wellbeing Trust tells us, we are a nation in despair. And I think that our justice system just has no choice in my view than to really lean in and become educated from an interdisciplinary vantage point that we could make huge differences in people's lives that, you know, to criminalize mental illness, to criminalize addiction. Well, we really need to intervene so much earlier. We need to get to our juvenile justice system. We need to get to our child welfare systems. We need to prevent incarceration. We need to keep our families and our communities around the country from becoming destroyed by incarceration, families torn apart, fathers that are incarcerated. We know that's an adverse, and mothers, that's an adverse childhood experience event in and of itself. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, and to create this intergenerational cycle of trauma and loss that I feel this is a really promising time in criminal justice. I'm inspired by the conflation of what we know now through the research. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the research and you know, kind of what you have seen, the trends around people who are incarcerated living with mental health conditions and the power of a problem-solving type of court like this that looks for diversion and looks for other opportunities for people. What does the research tell us? Is this stuff working? Well, first of all, I think, well, it depends. (laughs) You know, I think it really does depend, but, and that's another podcast. (laughs) But I think when we come from a therapeutic vantage point and we understand what our mission is. So if we look at the mental health court as a case study, as a working from a human rights framework, that the mission is to get people the resources and services that they need, not to overly burden people with arbitrary conditions, right? Mm-hmm. not to prolong and tether them to the criminal justice system, but to find these balances, right? Where people can get the benefit of the court, where public safety can be protected, and yet people are not coming back and cycling back with technical violations and their families aren't getting hit with huge court costs and all of that. So there's so many different threads in the criminal justice system that need to be looked at. But I think the research base if we go back you know, to the, I think, one of the most important research projects that we have in the United States that impact and intersect criminal justice and juvenile justice is the ACE study, mm-hmm. the, ACE, the, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And what it tells us about the impact of adverse childhood, early, early childhood development, the need for nurturing our children, the need to make sure that our children are not subjected to those are 10, 12 adverse childhood experiences as much as parents can prevent that, obviously. And then to make sure that we understand also the impact, the public health impact of trauma. So the idea that I think that the criminal justice system and judges have been absolutely heroic in leading our public health systems, Sally, I think it's the public health system that now need to stand up and take the lead because here we are, lawyers and judges, and now we have to become public health experts. Fine, 2015, I declared the mental health court a suicide, a zero suicide initiative court as the suicide rates began to spike in 2015. You do what you have to do, you know, in order to protect the community and serve the community. And if you're coming from a, from a problem solving vantage point, that's something we need to consider. We need to change the conversation around suicide. And so this research involving trauma and and adverse childhood experiences and what works in reentry and the idea that we have got to focus on the social determinants of health. We've got to invest in people and potential. We have got to make sure that children get a good education, that whether it's college or vacational school, that doesn't matter. We need to find our purpose, right? You Mm -hmm. did. 
I did. I know so many of your viewers are going, yes, I did too. We all have a passion. And it's almost impossible to live your dreams when you don't have food on the table right. or you don't have clean water or there's no textbooks. And I think poverty is really the next frontiers that we, again, we really need to, lack of a better word, attack. That's right. So here you are, a judge who has diverted 23,000 people from jail with your authority from the bench. How does an everyday person make a difference? How does what, what are well, some I'm of just an everyday person. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't consider myself anything but that. And I think we all have our vulnerabilities. We all have our strengths. I think as individuals, we have our strengths. As communities, we have our strengths. And if you can marry that and pursue that without, you can have doubt, but that doesn't mean you give up. That in spite of vulnerability, that in spite of, oh, I don't know if I can do this, or in spite of, I want to get to this goal, I don't know exactly how. My experience is that if you keep that goal in front of you, and if communities keep that goal in front of them, I can't tell you how many community, small groups, a dozen people sitting in a room or a restaurant and saying, look, judge, wherever we are in the United States or outside the United States, look, judge, what, this is what we think we want a mental health court, or we want to do this, or we want to solve this problem because we have, we lack resources, we lack leadership, there's a lack of policy. What can we do? I think you can do anything. I really, really believe that. I think where there's a thirst for justice, I think where there is a thirst for change, and I think where there's an abiding belief that individuals and communities could lead change, they do. Mm-hmm. And I go back to that, that moment that you boldly stepped into the arena, like, I don't know if this is going to stick. I don't know if this is going to work, but it feels like it's the right thing to do. And now's the time. I think if every citizen could reflect on that moment where they felt that same thing and step into the arena, regardless if they fail or not, I think that's the big thing. Like, oh, I don't know if I'm up for it. I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if it's supposed to be me. Try, try. You know, with, well, certainly with no grants. I mean, the court was the model for the American Mental Health Law Enforcement Act that gave money to all these other courts, but we didn't get any money. And I kind of like it that way, in a sense. But I think you're right. I mean, in spite of doubt, in spite of thinking that you're just one or three or five people, but we hear these stories and we read about these stories all the time. One person could create extraordinary change. You just really have to focus on the action and not worry about the failure and just give it a, give it a go. <laughs> Definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was sharing with you earlier that the uh, mental health America has a legislative action day. And I didn't realize this. I took their, their day long seminars and advocacy trainings. And I thought, oh, this is way beyond what I could do. This is too complicated. I don't really understand it. And, and they, they taught me, they said, your letters matter. Your phone calls matter. And sometimes, this is what they said, when a, when a legislator is on the fence, it's six letters sometimes that tips him or her one way or the other. And I thought, well, what, so interesting. what if my letter is that sixth letter and I didn't write it because I was 
concerned that it wouldn't be good enough or I, I didn't couldn't make the time. It takes 30 seconds to put a call on a voicemail that says what you need to say. So that really empowered me to think there is power in the everyday citizen to stand up for these injustice issues because change really happens a lot of the time at the policy level. When we can move policy in ways that address these injustices, we can really make substantial change. I am absolutely, I can't take my eyes off the news now, watching in all of these cities and all these states and everyone, people just marching, marching for justice and demanding it, then that is really the best example. Our democracy belongs to us. We the people, it is us. But we're, that also comes with responsibility. That's part of the responsibility that if you want to see change, then the responsibility does fall on us. Mm -hmm. You can do it through music. You can do it through art. You can do it through running for office like I did. You can do it through so many different outlets. But I think the idea is to activate your passion for a better world and to promote peace and uh, I just think it's, a, if everybody did that, I can't even imagine what the world would be like. Well, maybe I, I can. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's try to imagine. It would be great. Also, I'll drop into the show notes for those of you who are interested in maybe getting a little bit more activated and taking action in some of these social justice frames that there's a number of great ways to learn how to do that through through Mental Health America, through the National Council on Behavioral Health, through the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They all have different advocacy programs. Judge Ginger, I'm going to go and kind of do a little bit of a recap of some of the things that we've chatted about, some of our themes, and then I'm going to come back to you for some final thoughts. So we started as your, your development story, and I just can imagine you sitting in front of that small television, watching Dr. Martin Luther King and JFK, and really being inspired to, to step into the space of social justice and then finding your way, a, a very unconventional way through law and a passion for mental health into this groundbreaking work of a mental health court. And I'm, I'm really hoping that there's many more of these spreading because it's just such, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a basic idea about seeing this through human rights, but it's not one that has really been considered before. And we've rushed to incarceration when if we had not, people, families wouldn't have been disrupted. Children wouldn't have that adverse child event that now and that makes this a multi-generational issue. And people would have lives with dignity instead of four-point restraints and isolation. I am so inspired by the number you gave of the 23,000 lives that were diverted from jail to beautiful lives of getting degrees and being there for children. I loved your story of Catherine. What, a, what an amazing story to go from pretty long-standing homelessness to living out a dream that probably seemed impossible just a short period of time. Really focusing on the core of these social justice issues are those social determinants to health. When you don't have equal access to education and healthcare and housing and safety, things tend to fall apart. It is not unreasonable that things tend to fall apart. So how do we come from a public health frame and a social justice frame to correct those social determinants and that maybe we can have that vision of, you know, in our small communities, small groups of people getting together and with that thirst for justice, coming together in spite of their doubt and focusing on action. Love those messages. Judge Ginger, it's beautiful. Anything you want to make sure that we, that our listeners have as a takeaway? 
I just feel in this moment that we all have a role to play in whatever, find your passion, live your passion, and then do it through a social justice lens. And I, I just don't think that's what I tell my students that I innovated and I think everybody has the potential to lead change. And that's what I would leave everybody with that kind of of inspiration and optimism that everyone's here with a purpose and a legacy and it's our responsibility to live it. Beautiful. Perfect. Well, what an honor, Judge Ginger, to be with you. It's just so incredible to hear your story and to learn more about your work. If our folks want to get in touch with you or learn more, how should they do that? How can they get to learn more or get in touch with you? They can just Google me and they, they can find information. I'm on Twitter under Judge Wren. That is my handle, isn't it, Sally? Yeah, and I think so. obviously my email, my court email, I think is pretty easy for public record and easy enough to get. So I look forward to hearing any comments or input. Wonderful. So thank you again. Thank you to our listeners for showing up today. Thank you to our sound editor, Dave, for making us sound great. And to Jessica, our business manager, for keeping us all organized. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you learned something, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review and subscribe. It really helps uh, us to get the word out. And also, I'd love to hear what you took away, what you're wanting more of. Always want to be engaged with you. If you want to hear about future podcasts, you can subscribe to my newsletter at sallyspencerthomas.com. You'll also hear about the Twitter chats and the webinars and all kinds of things. So please come on over and and let me know uh, what you think and how we can best serve what you're looking for. So in closing, open your heart, challenge your thinking, and take action to save lives. Together, that's right. Together, we can restore dignity and sustain a passion for living. (laughs) 